Good evening, and I want to apologize to our church family for the technical difficulties this morning. And um, as I said to everyone who was gathered out in the parking lot, it just reminds you that we're fragile and we don't have everything together. And in this cursed world, things go awry, and it reminds, me, it reminds us how much we ought to rely on the Lord. So I wanted to re-record and re-broadcast the sermon. I do think it's an important message from the Lord's book for the Lord's people. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, whether you're watching live or later on, go ahead and open them with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Now read verses 11 through 14, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the text. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Father, we are eager to hear from you. We are your people. Your word is our food. And we trust ourselves, we entrust ourselves to you, the great shepherd of the sheep. Feed our hungry souls this evening through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 11 through 14 are the, are the verses that we looked at last week. We spent uh, the entire sermon looking at those verses. And what I said last week is that these verses, in a way, might be the main point or the main central argument of the book of Hebrews. And there were eight things we looked at about these verses, verses 11 through 14. Christ's priesthood is established by his indestructible life. His resurrection proves that he is the priest. Christ's preeminence, him being best of all, is demonstrated by the fact that he brings a better covenant. He enters through a better tent. He enters into the better holy places in heaven. And he does so by means of his better blood, meaning better than the blood of bulls and goats, etc., also, Christ's permanence is guaranteed by the sufficiency of his blood. And therefore, the first part of the promise is that the redemption in Christ's blood is eternally secure. Next, we saw that Christ's person is in harmony with the Father and the Spirit. He offers himself to God through the eternal Spirit. Then we saw that 
he offers his blood as a propitiation. And Christ's propitiation is the offering of his own blood to defer the wrath of God from the people. And then we saw that he also offers purification. It's not just dealing with wrath or, or guilt in, in some legal sense in God, but he actually does something in our hearts too. He purifies our conscience so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, the second part of his promise is this, that we are unqualified to serve the living God. So all of chapters 7 through 8, I think, in, in the first portion of chapter 9, build up to these verses, verses 11 through 14. And these aren't the verses that you would typically think of, of, you know, major texts or, or sections of verses in the Bible. You know, we think of Romans 1, Ephesians 1, John 1, a lot of first chapters in there of, of the big important chapters, John 3 maybe. Ephesians 2, when's the last time you heard someone say, yeah, Hebrews 9, that's, that's where it's all happening. But I really feel that these verses, verses 11 through 14, carry with it such significance and help us put the whole Bible together that we ought to treat it that way. And so verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verse 28, I believe are actually answering questions raised about that text or showing us implications of verses 11 through 14. So in a way, this is kind of Bible jeopardy, okay? So I think the author is answering questions, but he doesn't necessarily state the question, obviously, like Paul does. He just starts explaining what this means. And I think we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the author and figure out what questions he's asking. So in verse 11, here's the first question. In verse 11, we saw that Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. The good things that have come. And it's just kind of a general reference. So my question, and I think this is a question that we should all ask. Well, okay, author of Hebrews, what are the good things that have come? And, almost more importantly, how do they come to me? Right? It's one thing to say that something really good has happened in the world. It's another thing to say that I am, I am taking part in that good thing. You ever have a friend who calls you and, and just brags? A brag call. Here's this great thing that happened to me. I got this job. I've got this new car. I have this vacation I've planned, and it's going to be amazing. You want to be happy for them, but on the other hand, it's just, it kind of makes you feel bad because you don't get to have any part in that. So when we hear the author say that Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, we should want to be a part of those good things and to make sure that they actually apply to us. One of the reasons this is the case is that there's no real indication on who is part of this eternal redemption. And there's no real indication of who the hour is referring to. Look at it in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Some manuscripts even say your. How, how does 
how do I get into that category? How am I, how am I one of that group? You should want that. There's nothing good for you in these good things that have come unless you are unless they are made to apply to you. So how does that happen? Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And I think this the first portion of verse 15 answers the question that we're rolling with. The question is, what are these good things that have come and how do they apply to me? And this is how I think the author is answering it. He brings a fully new covenant. The good things that have come are nothing more and nothing less than an entirely new covenant. And he's introduced this back in chapter 8, referring to Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, declares the Lord. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the covenant that they broke. Here is the covenant that I will make with them. I will write my law on their hearts and on their minds. And why do I say nothing more? I said it's nothing less than a new covenant. It's nothing more than a new covenant. Here's the idea. Any blessing you would desire to have from God is now only through Christ as mediator of that new covenant. That's the point. First John says it this way. The love of God has been made manifest in Christ. Meaning this, that any, any claim to know God or love God or have access to God that is not through Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is invalid. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's only through me. Jesus is the mediator of the only standing covenant between God and man. The implications of this are profound. And we could spend many sermons just talking about that. Um, and we'll give one example here in a bit. But just to kind of underscore the importance of this idea. Christ being the mediator. Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He, Christ, stands between us and God. And for that very reason, he stands between us and all other men and things. He is the mediator, not only between God and man, but between man and man, between man and all reality. Since the whole world was created through him and unto him, he is the sole mediator in the world. Since his coming, meaning since the incarnation, Man has no immediate relationship of his own anymore to anything, neither to God nor to the world. Christ wants to be the mediator. And I would add, and he will not be denied, he is that mediator. There are so many examples of how this radically transforms your understanding of the world. One of them that I mentioned this morning is strength. It's a general concept. We all like strength. We think of it as an amoral concept. You know, you can either be evil and be strong or be good and be strong. And what Christ does, since he is the only mediator between God and man, is that if your strength is not for Christ, 
from Christ, and as he defines strength, it's sin. And so this is part of the good things that have come. Jesus delivers us from the domain of darkness, whereas previously everything was sin, because it is not through Christ, in inviting us and bringing us into this new covenant, we can actually now please God, because it is through Christ, the only mediator between God and men. So now you can do anything in a way that is pleasing to God. You can enjoy food to the glory of God through Christ, the one and only mediator. You can wash your dishes to the glory of God because it can be through faith in Christ, the only mediator. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Specifically, without faith in Christ, any action you do, no matter how good it may seem outwardly, unless it is from and through and to Christ, it is sin. So he has come as the new mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So who does this really apply to? That's the question we're rolling with right now, the first question. What are the good things that have come? How do they apply to me? Who gets the benefits of this blessing of this new covenant? Who gets this promised eternal inheritance? Those who are called. What does that mean? And why does he not just say those who believe or those who have faith? And I won't pretend that we have enough time or the attention span in a setting like this to answer all of those questions and untangle all the unnecessary knots that we tie. But this is a reference to God's eternal sovereign election. But for our purposes today, there's a slightly different nuance for us. And this is, this is so key. I want you to see this. We are called, not just in a binary sense of, oh, in Christ, not in Christ, called, not called. We are called, in a sense, issued a summons. Back in Hebrews 5, verses 4 through 5, here's how the author uses that same word, called. And no one takes this honor on for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So to be a Christian isn't just like being uh, part of a club or uh, a badge of honor or something that... Uh, like getting a gold star, so to speak. It is, you, you are being called out of the massive condemnation, as Augustine called it, and being summoned, issued a, a charge, a command, as it were, to serve the living God alongside Christ in the most holy place in heaven. And here's just a, a question to to attack your heart with in this moment. Is that how you view your Christian life? That all of your Christian life is meant to be preparation for and even a preview of this 
priestly ministry, that he is, he is even creating in us a nation of priests. Is that how you think of your life, or has the enemy tricked you and enslaved you to the tyranny of the urgent, to besetting sins? Just going from to-do lists to putting out fires, false starts, waste of time, and all, all of this stuff that can go on in our lives and that we, we, we don't set our mind on things above. The reason we should set our minds on things above is not only because that is where Christ is, but that's where you're going to be. Alongside Him, praising God in the priestly service that Christ has secured even Himself. So the natural question I think we ask next, since it is those who are called who receive this eternal inheritance, that is the inheritance. The inheritance is that we would serve the living God just as the tribe of Levi did. So how do we know if we are called? You could jump to all sorts of different places in the Bible to answer that question easily, but let's let the author of Hebrews answer that. Let's be patient and get to the end of the chapter. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. End of verse 15. So this answers more of the question that we're uh, asking of the text. How can these good things come to me? It's one thing to say, good things have come. How is it that these good things that Christ has brought actually come to me? How is that possible? How is God just to do that? How can he, in holiness and justice, summon and call sinners out of the mass of condemnation to enter into the most holy place to minister with His Son in the eternal praise of God. Imagine how stark and stunning this is. Only the high priest could enter once a year into the Holy of Holies. Yet what Christ does in bringing a new covenant is to call us out of our sin. We have no qualification. None of us are high priests. And He is drawing us into that place. How is that appropriate? In short, death. There are many other ways. How can God bring us into that place? How is it just for Him to do so? But the author cuts right to the heart of what makes it all possible. Death. A death has occurred, namely Christ's death, that redeems them namely the called, from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Just as an aside, this implies that all, both Jews who received the law and Greeks who did not, are still under the condemnation of transgressions committed under the first covenant. But how is it that Christ's death redeems all the called from transgressions committed under the first covenant. And with that question, we're getting very close to the heart 
of the gospel. How is it that Jesus' death redeems the called from the transgressions committed under the first covenant so that we can now serve the living God? How does that work? Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So the author is looking back to the Old Testament. In every case where a covenant was made, there had to be some kind of death. And in a sense, the the sacrifice that was made uh, represented both parties of the covenant. If you're listening closely, you can see how I'm, I'm basically talking about the gospel as I explain what was taking place in making covenants. That when a sacrifice was made, both parties in that covenant, in that promise that was being made between both parties, their lives were represented in the life of the sacrifice. The author of Hebrews already gives us a picture of this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we are so connected in a mysterious way with Christ that his death counts as our death. We are in this fear of punishment for sin. We're in slavery to the yoke of sin. And not because necessarily that there is some power that the devil has that that God hasn't granted or that he can operate outside of the sovereign reign of God. The reason we're under the punishment and the fear of the punishment of sin is because of the law. Because of the curse of the law, the soul that sins shall die, God says. So Jesus' death counts as our death. Do you understand the gravity of being in Christ? That you are so loved by God in Christ that when Christ dies, there is such that intimate connection between you and your Messiah, even from before the foundation of the world, that his death counts as your death. And here's a quick, easy way for you to remember the glory of this. Why did Jesus have to die? There are many ways you can answer. There's even a great book called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. I would recommend it. But how does the author answer that question here? How does the author want us to think, well, why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because you had to die. Understand this. Jesus didn't merely die instead of you. He died for you. Meaning, in his death, you died. This is what Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
The idea is that Christ's death is mine through faith. And Jesus' death is uh, his life now. His resurrected life is mine through faith. This is part of the offense of the cross. Jesus had to die because we had to die. Even the best among us, the best person, the best life you could offer outside of Christ, God's righteous judgment is the death penalty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So the good things that have come, and how they apply to us, here's, here's the summary of answering that question. The death of Christ, counting as our death, or the death of the called, to the first covenant, redeeming the called from sins committed under the first covenant, and bringing us into a new covenant. Here's the second question that I'm asking of verses 11 through 14. In verses 11 through 14, we see a contrast between the Old Testament sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ's own self. So my question, what I think is a fair question of the text, is what was the purpose of the earthly tent, and the blood of bulls and goats, and the heifer, and all of these things? Why give the copy? What is the point of the copy? If it was always going to be temporary, if it was always going to be provisional, then why did we even have it in the first place? And the answer, I think, is this, that the copies are given to the people through Moses as dark, sharp, and glorious, revealing shadows of the better things. When, when a shadow is, is faint and, and not very dark, the, the lines uh, don't really help you make out what the real thing is. But if you have the real thing in front of you and behind that real thing is a light, then, then what gets shown is a very clear, stark, and dark shadow. That's how you should think about the first covenant. And here's how the author uh, fills that out for us. Verses 18 through 23 are really him reflecting on how all of these copies were shadows of the better things that have come in Christ. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For every commandment of the law, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. few observations on these texts, just three before we move on to verse 24. The first is that the law given to Moses, the copies given to the people through Moses were a very clear, stark, sharp shadow. 
And that's what God is doing. He's not, he's not hiding the truth from the people, but he's showing them a very clear preview, a forecasting of what is coming with the better things in Christ. We see it every year with the blood and the death of the animals and the need for blood to cover sin and the need for forgiveness. And that sin cuts us off from God's presence, not from just a legal standpoint, but from a purity standpoint. We can't even approach him because of how dirty our sin makes us. The second observation from these texts is the idea of inauguration versus annulment. Or the beginning of something versus the end of something. In the verses above, we saw that we were redeemed. The called are redeemed from transgressions committed under the first covenant. But here in verses 18 through 23, we see this idea of the making of a new covenant. That the copies needed to be purified before you could even start. And so... The heavenly things needed to be sanctified. So Jesus' death redeems us from the curse of the first covenant and enters us into the second covenant. So his, his death had both purposes. Both of those were going on in the cross. And then I want you to see verse 23. And the unity and harmony of the Bible. One of the most discouraging things, I think, as grow in your faith is, is the idea that it, it's a bad idea, but it's, it's a perception that can come very easily that the Bible's just really confusing. It doesn't make sense. Um, there's a lot going on. I don't understand what's all going on. But if, if you really take to heart verse 23 and what it means, it can help you put your whole Bible together. It was necessary for the copies the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices. So regardless of where you are in the Bible, every word written is at some point on this line. L listen closely. This is the line. There's a buildup to the first covenant. And there's this painful, repeated demonstration of its insufficiency. And even as the insufficiency of the first covenant is being demonstrated, we receive promises in dozens of places pointing us to the better things that now have come in Christ. And then you finally get to Christ and he appears and he brings these better things. And he enters us into this life of preparation for our eternal inheritance. The entire Bible is at some point on that line. You can put your life in that last category, that preparing for this eternal inheritance. So that's an answer to this, the second question. What, what was the purpose of the earthly tent? Why even go through the trouble of making a first covenant if it was always going to be temporary? It's to foreshadow, forecast, and prepare even the people for the better things that have come. The idea is this, that were it not for the first covenant, the world and the people and the called would not be ready for the better things that have come. We probably wouldn't have even understood it. Verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, 
but into heaven itself. Now, to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's the third question I want to ask, and this is our final question for today. If you're listening closely at the beginning, there's two sides of Christ's promise. First side, first part, is that Christ has secured an eternal redemption. His redemption is eternally secured. And the second half, this is in verse 14, is that he has cleansed, purified our conscience from dead work so that we can serve the living God. And I said last week, as we covered that text, that those, I think, mean the same thing. This eternal redemption, this eternal inheritance is the calling to serve God forever. So here's my question. How is Christ's redemption eternal? And what does it mean to serve the living God? I think those are fair questions. And these are the kinds of questions that you need to be asking of the text. How or why is Christ's redemption eternal? And what does it even mean to serve the living God? First, our redemption is eternal because Christ has entered into the most holy place in heaven to represent us to God. Verse 24, Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself. Therefore, this is the point, the only way your redemption in Christ could not be eternal is if Christ could ever lose his right to stand there representing you to God. The only way Jesus could lose that right would be for the resurrection to be undone. The cross would have to be undone. God's gracious calling from eternity past would have to be undone. The lamb being slain before the foundation of the world would have to be undone. Nothing short of all reality. The very nature and character of God would have to be undone and come to nothing for your redemption to stop being eternally secure and established in Christ. The commitment of God to ensure that your redemption is eternal is nothing less than his own commitment to be God. That's stunning. That God is so, has so married his glory and his namesake to your eternal security in Christ that it's virtually the same thing. And if that doesn't stun you, if that doesn't move you and evoke in you worship, then I don't know what can or what should. The second reason that Christ's redemption is eternal is this. He only died once and cannot die again. The redemption Christ secured is eternal. 
and cannot be anything less than eternal because Christ only died once and cannot die again. There are no more plans for any sacrifice at all for sins. The altar is closed. We talked about this a few weeks ago. If they ever rebuild the temple or a model of the tabernacle and start offering some semblance of those sacrifices, don't go. Don't do that because the altar is closed. Christ has died for sins. And just consider the flavor of the first covenant versus this new covenant. With the high priest having to come every year into the Holy of Holies. And, and with, with great trepidation, I mean, there, there's a chance that he could be struck dead. If he didn't make atonement first for his sins before appearing before God in the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. It would just be stressful. Can you imagine that it, just all of the, the preparation and the prayer and the, the eagerness to make sure that this sacrifice was given to assuage uh, the wrath of God just one more year, a reminder of sins, that things are not right, and, and just the frustration and angst that might even come with that. Not so with Christ. And that's part of the point of the old covenant. It can't be the final solution because you have to keep coming back and doing it every year. Number three, the redemption Christ's secured is eternal and must be so because he actually put away sins with his own blood. The first covenant only purified the body and offered a reminder of sins. When you got to keep coming back every year and addressing the issue of sin, that reminds you this is still a problem. Sin is still a problem. We got to keep coming back and doing this every year. Forgiveness isn't fully and finally secured yet. And it says that they brought blood not his own. So the blood of, of a calf or a goat, or regardless of what the, the sacrament was, it was always blood, not human blood, blood of a sacrifice. But Christ brings his own blood. And by so doing, he puts away sin. It's done. If Christ dealt with the only thing separating you from God, your sin, then your redemption is eternally secure. If Christ has removed sin out of the way for you to enjoy and know God forever, then nothing can get in the way between you and enjoying God and praising Him alongside Christ in the ministry of the heavenly holy of holies forever. Just a side note, because the text brings it up, I think it's important to mention here. But as it is, the end of verse 26, but as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. People ask me sometimes, do you think it is the last days, or do you think it's the end times? And my answer in one, on the one hand is always yes, because Christ appeared at the end of the ages. John says it is the last hour, 
And it's been so for 2,000 years. An analogy would be uh, like an airplane when, when, you're, when you're flying from one city to another and uh, something is maybe holding up the, the airport at your destination. Maybe there's too many planes coming in and so you've just got to circle the airport waiting for your turn to land. The ages have concluded. That's the point. And the only thing left, the only thing that is holding back the cataclysm of the judgment day, the great and awesome day of the Lord is his patience and mercy. Don't count his patience as slowness in fulfilling his promise. We are in the last hour, and it has been since Christ died. Let's rejoice in his patience. And bring many. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we're operating under the third question How is it that Christ's redemption is eternal? And what does it mean to serve the living God? And this text answers, gives us a fourth answer. The redemption that is in Christ is eternal and must be eternal because Jesus is the one doing the saving. Look at it. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We do not ransom ourselves. We do not rescue ourselves. We do not forgive ourselves. We don't reconcile ourselves. We don't sanctify ourselves. We don't glorify ourselves. We do not save ourselves. And that is such good news. Jesus is the Savior. If you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, you can scarcely live one day without massive failures especially from God's perspective. Any sin is just a massive failure from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that matters. So it's a good thing. It is such a good thing and, and great news for us that Jesus is the one who is doing the saving. If someone were to ask you, are you saved? You could very well say yes. But you can just as well say, and with this biblical justification, say very clearly, not yet. We await the day of adoption. We are being saved, and we wait for the day when Christ returns and saves those who are eagerly waiting for him. The blessings of salvation and the unfolding of salvation are not contained in your conversion experience. Whatever that is, we look forward to a day when Christ will return. And for those who are dead in Christ, will give life to our mortal bodies and take us all into that place. The reason we, we don't think this way primarily because we think of our world and the things that are going on in our lives. We don't set our minds on things above, but the reason we should set our minds on things above is not just because that's where Christ is, but that's where you will be one day. Even as Paul says, we are seated with him, even now. 
There is a level of mystery in understanding this, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want you to also note the inevitability of Christ's return, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment, so Christ is coming again. It would not be just for God to do everything that he's done and not send Christ again. Because he's promised that he would come. And those who are eagerly waiting for him, who are suffering under the oppression of the enemy and still warring against the flesh, we have set our hope on Christ. And if our hope is just in this life only, we are most to be pitied. Jesus must return because he must vindicate his people. And this leads us to answer the last two unanswered questions this evening. What does it mean to serve the living God? And how do I know if I'm called to this? Based on the structure of this passage, I want to argue, and I want to give this to you, that the answer to both of those questions is answered in this phrase, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Just bring back into your mind all of the parables from Jesus about a master owning a field or a vineyard or an estate, and he entrusts his estate or his field or his vineyard into the hands of servants, and then he goes away on a long trip, and then he returns, and some of the servants aren't ready. And some of them are, and they receive commendation or condemnation depending on how they've lived their lives and how they have handled the estate or the vineyard or the field or whatever it is. That's what he's talking about here. So it carries the flavor of preparation and the eagerness. So how do I know if I'm called? I think he could have just easily said that because he's already introduced that he's going to redeem the called so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He could have reintroduced that phrase at the end of this chapter. Not to deal with them, but to save those who are called. He could have said that, but I think he uses this phrase to answer the question, how do you know if you're called? Are you eagerly waiting for him? I so wish I could just hold some kind of spiritual blacklight over the, the hearts and souls of people and know who's saved and who's not. But what the Bible gives us are these types of tests. Are you eagerly waiting for and preparing for his return like those faithful servants? So I'm going to ask you to do a very hard thing this evening. To be honest with yourself. What gain is there? What do you gain? What benefit is it to you? For you to continue to put on a front. That Jesus is in fact your hope and trust. When you have nothing close in your heart. To an eager hope. For his return. And in your life, you have nothing close to an eager preparation 
for his return. He who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Is your life a preview of this service in the heavenly holy of holies? Do you long to see your Messiah? And all of life, all of it, just as we said in the beginning, that Christ being the mediator means that all of life must be through him and to him and for him. If that's not happening, and if none of what I'm saying makes sense about this type of life of getting ready for the return of the master, the return of the king, the return of your Lord and Savior, and and eagerly pleading with others as much as possible, and according to the grace that God gives you to enter into this covenant, then the Bible would call into question whether or not you're really a Christian. And if you're honest with yourself, if you've done the difficult thing this evening, and you're just honest with yourself, and you say, you know what? I, I don't really eagerly desire and treasure his return. I'm not eagerly and excitedly preparing for that day. Now I'm just kind of chasing my own stuff. I've got my career and my plans and the vacations I want to take and the retirement I want to have, and the type of family I want to have, and that, that's my treasure. If, if God has given you the grace to be that honest with yourself, there is much reason for hope. And so if you realize that, if you know that this hasn't happened in your heart, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Has your soul found the one you love in him? Friends, brothers and sisters, this is not a higher form of Christianity. This isn't something that you get after being a Christian for 10 years or 15 years and you finally get to a place where in your heart you're eagerly waiting for the return of Christ to see your Lord and you're spending your days as much as the Lord will give you to prepare for that day. That's not not higher spirituality or some higher level of maturity. That is basic Christianity. That is what it means to be born again. That is what it means to be in this new covenant. That is the good things that Christ came to bring. That is what it means to have God's law written on your heart and your mind. So do yourself the greatest favor you could do and just be honest. I know that might sound severe or harsh, but it's the most gracious thing you could hear right now. The most merciful for thing, thing for God to do for you is to expose that you've been kidding yourself. You've been deceiving yourself, deceiving others, and you're not truly in Him. But if it is, 
you see in yourself. Regardless of how much you struggle and stumble and are frustrated with yourselves, yourself that it's not perfect, if at the deepest point in your heart you say, yes, I want to see him. I want him to return. I, I want to spend my days getting ready for that day. I want to invite as many others as possible into this new covenant. If that is at the bottom of your heart, regardless of how imperfectly you work it out, then rejoice. God has changed you. He has given you the new heart and Christ is your Messiah. You are in him and these eternal things these good things, this redemption in Christ is yours and it can't ever not be yours. So regardless of what the answer is, the, there, there is reason for rejoicing. If you, you've been given the grace to be honest with yourself or if you have been given the grace to see clearly that He is at work in your heart, to see those evidences of His grace, we all say, Amen. Pray. Father, grant us this grace that we would be honest with you, honest with each other, and honest with ourselves. Thank you for the redemption that is in Christ and that it is eternal and never in question, and never can it be in question. Thank you that you prepared the world through the dark shadow of the law the coming of the good things in Christ. And thank you that these good things are available to us, that we can enter into them through faith in Christ. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.